stories and storytelling. There's power in a story. I guess that's why a lot of us buy novels. Story, narrative, plot, identification. Alan Bennett in his play, The History Boy, says that one of the most powerful moments in literature is when you read and discover in print a feeling, an emotion, or a state of existence that you had previously thought unique to you. Story, tell me a story, or better still, tell me your story. This morning we find ourselves delving into, we find ourselves looking at the story of Ruth. Yep, we're back here looking at some of the Bible's colorful characters. And as we have said with each of the colorful characters, what we're hoping to do is just to give an overview. An overview of a person's life and story, and then take something from their story that we can apply to our story. In the time available, it's not possible to go into every detail. But the hope is that once you've heard the story, that maybe you'll go home and read the story again for yourself, and maybe spend some time asking yourself two questions. Was there anything new that I heard in the story when I read it this time? And is there anything in the story that makes me want to live my life differently? So let's jump straight in. In chapter one of the book of Ruth, we hit the ground running. It begins with the words, in the day when the judges ruled. Instantly, we get our historical timeline in which to place this story. Roughly 1200 to 1020 BC, a period from the death of Joshua, who we looked at, do you remember those walls? To the coronation of Saul. And this period is dark. In fact, it's probably one of the darkest, if not the darkest period of history in the story of God's people. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judea went to to live in the country of Moab. He, his wife, and his two sons. Now, can you spot the irony at the very beginning of this story? A man from Bethlehem takes his family to live somewhere else because there's famine in the land. Bethlehem can be translated as house of bread. So what we're encountering here in the story is literally starving people in the house of bread. This wouldn't have been missed on the original hearers. So we have a famine and we have a family. There's a husband, a wife, and their children. And the husband is faced with a decision, either to stay in Bethlehem and starve or move 50 miles away so that he and his family in Moab can have a better quality of life. The wife's name is Naomi, and the kids are called Malon and Chilon, which means sick and dying. I'm sure as we're choosing kids' names and we're looking through babies' books and we're thinking, oh, I hope he grows up just to be like that. Sick and dying is the name of the children here. So we go on. Verse 3, the father dies. Okay, hang on a minute. We kind of think we know where this story is going. It's going to be a story of a one family's great big adventure. But no. 
We're left with a wife and two sons. And the two sons in the story take Moabite wives. Now this would have been frowned upon because Moabite women and Moabites weren't allowed into the assembly of the people of God. So we have the wife and the two sons still in the story and their two wives, Oprah and Ruth. And what happens to the sons? Well, 10 years down the line, or one or two verses as we have it recorded, the sons die. There is an awful lot of death in the first couple of verses of Ruth. So Naomi, by the time she reaches verse 6 of chapter 1, is husbandless and childless. So she decides, what can she do? She's going to go back to Bethlehem. So she lets her daughter-in-laws in on the plan. Now we read in chapter 1 a serious family talk. In fact, it's the first conversation recorded in the book. And if you spend some time later reading the story, you'll discover that over half the book of Ruth is actually a conversation. out Out of the 85 verses, 55 of those are dialogue. So what will the daughters do? Well, Naomi tells them that they probably shouldn't come with her. And instead, they should return to their own families. Because she's a widow, she is nothing. So she says to them, go home, go back to your families, have a better quality of life than you could if you remained with me. I'm a widow, I've no home, I'm broke, I've no kids, I've no money, I've no future. So it's probably best for you to go home. So what do the daughter-in-laws do? Well, the text tells us that when they had this chat, Oprah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Oprah decides to return to her family, and Ruth decides to journey on with her mother-in-law. She says, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. So the two of them set out on their journey, heading back to Bethlehem. And as they come back to Bethlehem, they cause quite a stir because the people in the village recognize Naomi. We hear them say, is this not Naomi? Chapter one. Chapter two, enter the rich relative. Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man from her husband's side, whose name was Boaz, a worthy man. This phrase has been used elsewhere in the Old Testament, and it kind of refers to a a man's man, an action man, a man who's not only good in war, but also a man who has money at his disposal. Ruth, Ruth has a plan. Her and Naomi have no money, so she comes up with a scheme to help them make some. She asks Naomi to let her go gleaning. Gleaning, not really a phrase that I was familiar with, maybe not a phrase you're familiar with. So what is gleaning? Well, it's kind of like the Hebrew equivalent to the social services or a homeless shelter or a food bank. So how does it work? Well, God had told the people that the land belonged to him. So if a person owned a piece of land, God was effectively saying, it's yours, 
but I also own it. You feel free to harvest it, take the crops to feed your family, but don't harvest it all. Save a section. Allow the poor, the orphan, the alien, the oppressed, the person without to come and harvest that section so they too may have food for their family. Here in the story of Ruth, we encounter Ruth being willing to work to change the circumstances that she and her mother-in-law find themselves in. And where does Ruth find herself to do this gleaning? Well, she happens upon a field owned by the wealthy family relative, and she stays all day until Boaz sees her, and he lets her glean and gather. Now remember, Ruth had originally set out asking just to glean, but here we see that she's gleaning and gathering. And this is a big deal because this is basically two jobs. So it means that she could theoretically be paid twice for what she is doing. Also note that these were typically men's jobs. Women were occasionally allowed to help, but here we witness Ruth being tasked with both the jobs. Boaz sees her and starts asking around, who is that woman? Seems like a perfectly innocent question. Who is that woman? But maybe there's more to that turn of phrase than meets the eye. Maybe if we translate ourselves back in time, we could translate it almost as a kind of chat-up line, trying to figure out, is this girl young, free, single, and ready to mingle? Put simply, Boaz is very interested. Now, as we journey through the rest of the chapter, we encounter a fixation with the words Moab. We see Ruth constantly being referred to as from Moab and being a Moabite. And we know from Scripture that when something is repeated over and over and over again, the author is trying to get our attention. This isn't the kind of of end-of-year essay where the author is desperately trying to get the word count up. No, there's something more that we should note. Moab Moabite. Well, in Numbers, the book of Numbers, we read that being a Moabite woman was not a compliment. Because in Numbers, if a Moabite woman slept with an Israelite man, the man was cursed for 10 generations. So to be labeled a Moabite woman wasn't really something in your favor. But what do we see Boaz doing for Ruth? Well, we see that he not only lets her glean in the field, but that he feeds her and he waters her until the end of the story. Sorry, until the end of the harvest. Chapter 2. Chapter 3, Naomi tries to do a little bit of matchmaking. At the opening of chapter 3, we read, Isn't it time I try and find you a husband? so you can be happily married again. And who do you think that Naomi thinks fits the bill? Well, of course you guessed it, Boaz. So Naomi tries to speed things up. She tells Ruth to bathe, put on perfume, and go to the threshing floor later that night and uncover Boaz's feet. Threshing 
floor. Another turn of phrase that would have caught the original hearers automatically. Because in the ancient world, the threshing floor was associated with ancient fertility rituals. Why is she telling Ruth to go to the threshing floor? Well, the plot thickens. Ruth does as she is told. She goes and lies down beside him, and she uncovers his feet, and suddenly he awakes. Now, in some interpretations of this story, all we need to say is this is the moment when the story of Ruth turns from a PG to an adult movie. Because in some interpretations, let's just say those aren't his feet that she's uncovering. So she uncovers the feet, and then she comes up with this plan. And she tells him that actually he should make her his wife. But just when Ruth has the dress picked, the honeymoon vacation planned, the wallpaper for the new home in her mind's eye, a stumbling block. Boaz thinks she might like someone younger. Is there not somebody else in your family, a relative who's more closely related to you than I am, he asks her. But don't fret, darling, he says. I'll go, I'll go meet this relative. I'll ask, and if he won't marry you, I will. Boaz is trying to secure Ruth a future. So we see Boaz buying up all the land that was previously owned, by Naomi's husband and the two sons so that he's free to marry Ruth. Meaning that both her and Naomi, who set out together from a place of uncertainty and calamity, have now found security and stability in the generosity and care of Boaz. Which is why many over the years have seen Boaz as a kind of redeemer figure in the story. But the thing with stories often is that the more we hear them, the more we read them, the more we see that's going on in the story. Beneath the surface, you're always confronted by something you didn't see before. Ideas and notions that challenge your original perspectives or cause you again to look at the story from a fresh perspective. And it's from looking at this story, the story of Ruth, with a fresh perspective, that I want us to draw two applications. Firstly, in the story of Ruth, it's really important that we understand just how complex these characters are. These are people like us. They're people from real life. And just like in relationships with us, in the story of Ruth, we're we're dealing with virtue, but also maybe a little bit of hidden motive. Boaz using Ruth, maybe. Ruth using everything at her disposal to secure a future, maybe. What we are seeing in the story is not only a person's virtue, but also a person's shadow. A story dealing with a person's shadow as well as the light. Now bear with me. I'm going to get a wee bit technical. There's a little bit of a difference between shadow and sin. Okay? Sin is something that we talk about in terms of getting rid of. And shadow is something in us 
about us that we don't really like about ourselves, something we try to suppress, disown, deny, but still manages at times to find itself back on the surface. Maybe we project it on to others. Sin is something we speak of about in terms of needing to repent from, but shadow, on the other hand, is maybe more of a turning towards. Let's talk Eminem. I know we haven't done this in a while. And his movie, Eight Mile, the story of a white rapper from Detroit who finds himself down on his luck, competing in a, competing in a subculture in rap-offs. And how do you win rap-offs? Well, it seems to be that in order to win a rap-off, what you need to do is find the most degrading way you can put a person down, and then you win. But in the movie Eight Mile, we find that the Eminem character does something completely different. Because when he manages to reach the final of the rap-off and gets up to rap, what he actually does is rather than insult the person he's competing against, he turns it all on himself. He He begins to use his ammunition on himself, and he owns everything about him, even the worst parts. And guess what? The audience are overwhelmed. They've never seen this before. And Eminem wins. Ruth, a story of shadow and light. But a a story that shows us that when a shadow becomes our constant companion, we can use it rather than it using us. In Ruth, the story, we see that as the characters begin to embrace their shadows, their pasts, that actually the love story begins. Okay, so light and shadow, firstly. Secondly, Ruth goes to Boaz in the middle of the night. In the middle of the night, we need to understand just how dangerous this is. Here we have a single woman settling out to find herself lying next to a man who's sleeping in the middle of the night and uncovers his feet. Now in the original context, both of these characters have an awful lot to lose. Ruth could be killed, in fact she could be stoned, but Boaz also would have a lot to lose. In the middle of the night. Ruth, the story, is full of turns of phrases that the original hearers would have understood. And in the middle of the night is another one of those. It's a motif that they are familiar with from their history. In the middle of the night. When they heard those words, they would automatically assume of a moment fraught with huge potential. In the middle of the night, Something risky, something dangerous, something huge is going to happen here. Think back to the other times in Scripture when you read about in the middle of the night. It was in the middle of the night that Jacob wrestled with the angel. It was in the middle of the night that God passed over the Israelite children, the Israelite homes, and killed the firstborn of the Egyptians. It was in the middle of the night that Samson figured out how to escape from Gaza. In the middle of the night. This is the climatic moment in the book of Ruth, because from now on, nothing can ever be the same. In the middle 
of the night. How many of us know what it's like to live in the middle of the night? You find yourself at a moment in life, a crossroads, where you have to decide which way you're going to turn. Is it going to be left or right? There's no sky on demand pause button here. Or maybe you're here this morning and the moment has already happened for you and you are trying to figure out what direction to go in. In the middle of the night, a moment of major transition. Maybe it's a moment of transition in your relationships. Maybe it's a moment of transition in your workplace. Maybe it's a moment of transition in where you live. In the middle of the night. Dawn is coming, but here there is a moment of uncertainty. And maybe it's not just individuals who can live in middle of the night moments. Maybe communities too. Maybe even churches. In the middle of the night. What's helpful to remember when you find yourself in the middle of the night? Well, in the middle of the night, darkness is normal. You're not supposed to know just yet because you don't need to know. In the middle of the night, don't panic because it will pass. It never stays the middle of the night because the sun will rise again. In the middle of the night, it's important to keep first things first. In the middle of the night, in the darkness, you can easily hear noises and get distracted and maybe even get up out of bed to go and see where the noise is coming from. And when you get up, you kind of do that thing where you think, oh, I don't need to turn the light on. I know where I'm going. But you can quite quickly find that in the middle of the night, you can bump your head off an awful lot of stuff in the dark. And in the middle of the night, whichever way you go, it will be okay eventually. Ruth and Boaz, a radical redemption story. It's a story about risky decisions. Dumb decisions, maybe some of them are. But it shows us that in reality that we can never really get out of the way of God's care for us. Ruth, a story of desolation. Ruth, a story of risk. Ruth, a story of uncertainty. But Ruth, a story of redemption. But Ruth, a story in which we can see all the complexities of human life in and even our life in. It's always darkest before the dawn, Florence and the Machine would sing. Les Miserables tells us to hang on for one more day because none of us know what is in the future. Glenn Hansard sings, you've been kneeling in the dark for far too long, so it's time to get off the floor. It's always darkest before the dawn, in the middle of the night. Amen. Let us pray before the band come and lead us in a period of reflective um, singing. In the middle of the night, Father, we come before you 
in the middle of daylight, where fears don't haunt us maybe the way they do in the middle of the night, where maybe we can escape from some of those tricky decisions that we need to make in the middle of the night. Father, grant us the courage. Help us to listen to what you're telling us to do. Help us in the middle of the night to keep focused on you. Not to be distracted by all those noises vying for attention that we hear around us. In the middle of the night, Lord, help us to feel your presence journey with us. Amen.